0: Lessons of Tech Episode Number Six. I am your host, Eric Sutton, and today on the show we continue our discussion with Tim and Giovanni from Saga of Leucemia, which is an MMORPG that they and their team are developing. This is a long format discussion which diverges from our normal present, past, and future format. That format will resume with episode seven. I sat down with my good friend Jeff Pugilis to have a conversation with Tim and Giovanni about the inner workings of their game world and the mechanics that the team are working to bring to life, as well as what it's like trying to publicize an independently developed MMORPG. So without further ado, let's dive back into the interview.
1: So you obviously know the immense scope that most massively multiplayer games oh, yeah. entail. So where was the decision to make this an MMO versus a, um, you know, a, just a co-op game or, or like a
2: guild
0: wars or something. Yeah. yeah,
2: Somebody, somebody asked this question of us very early on, on Facebook. Um, when we first started doing our social media around, I think it was around October, November of last year. Um, and the reason for that is actually just quite simple. Um, we, ourselves wanted to play this game. So we started building it for us and it was always about community and there's just no way to have a community in a single player game. You can't have it. So we Mm -hmm. said to hell with it. We don't care how, how long it takes. We looked at the guys who built Darkfall, and it took them seven years and we said, you know what? Those guys had the passion and the vision to stick with their project for seven years to make it happen. Even, even when it was only like five guys working on that out of, you know, Greece They still kept at it, no matter no matter what people were saying about them. They still kept plugging away until they finally launched their game, and that's us. We said we don't care how long it takes. We want to make this a reality. We don't want to do a single player game. We want to make a a community based MMORPG because that's what we like, and that's what we constantly want to play. And there's just nothing there's nothing out there right now that that creates that. It's like every everyone we talk to, and all of us ourselves, we it's like, the where do we all end up? Back on the freaking emu servers. It, it <laughs> always ends up back at the emu servers. Why? Because there's nothing out there. There's nothing out there that has that community-based environment anymore. So that's really what it came down to, was us just saying, oh, to hell with single-player games. There's plenty enough of those out there. Let's just do this, no matter how long it takes. And that's one of the benefits is because we're all employed. We're not game developers. We're just Guys who are learning and going and doing in our spare time. So we're not reliant upon paychecks as game developers as to whether or not we can actually make this game. We're already working. We already have day jobs. We're doing this in our spare time because it is our hobby. It is our passion. It's what we're doing. You know, other people go out and, I don't know, some people have, you know, model trains and other people – have, you know, they do skateboard and other people rock climb and, and etc. And this is what we do.
0: And unity sort of makes this possible.
2: This is, this is a good thing to say, because, um, I want to give you guys another example. Um, my wife is not part of this project, but, um, uh, when I first met her, um, we've been together for about five years now, have been married for almost two. Um, when I first met her, Facebook was, nothing more than something she used to chat with her friends and family back home that was it she had no concept of using Facebook to make a living and to make money she'd never done anything online um, she eventually after two years of me you know telling her you need just believe me trust me buy a laptop and I'll teach you how to do this stuff online. Um, she finally got a laptop and then I just turned her loose on YouTube. And I said, You want to learn? I said, What do you want to do? And she said, Well, I, I think maybe I want to do like graphic design and stuff. And I was like, Here's YouTube, here's tutorials on Photoshop. Have fun. <laughs> within, within six months, she had her own little graphic design business and was doing stuff on Fiverr. And it's not like it was making her a bunch of money, but she was making more money than she was making being a waitress in Mexico. And then since then, she's learned how to do a lot more just through the fact that the internet has allowed these opportunities to exist. And what I speak on at the conventions that I go and, and, and talk at within the travel blogging industry is always about the power of the internet to allow people to create their own reality. If you have a dream, the internet can make it a reality because technology has advanced, has advanced to the point where it is so commonplace now that anyone can learn anything with the power of the internet. You want to learn how to use something? It's there. Unity is the perfect example. Um, not only does unity have a bunch of amazing tutorials and videos on their website. Um, I have a Linda, Linda.com subscription and I've had one for about three years. That's where I learned how to use unity and I'm not at my brother's level, but I was able to follow through these videos and within about uh, a week of tutorials, I don't know if you guys were around at that point, but back in like February, I think, or March, I streamed for like a week, me creating a zone and, Um, Some of those are on the YouTube channel actually now. Um, It's the the foresty zone with like the fire lit sky. Um, That was me with one week of Linda. I basically sat there for a week and I watched – Uh, something like four hours of Lynda tutorials, you know, each one's like 30 minutes long or something. I just kind of warped through them and and was building the zone as I was going along. And, And it took me about a week, but I built that zone in a week and other people can do it in two and a half hours. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, I can do it. And I learned how to do it in a week. If you give me the time to do that every single day for the next year, I'll be able to create a zone in two and a half hours. Sure. That's, that's the power of the internet. The technology of today, Unity being the perfect example, is that, you know, yes, it kind of does suck for the guys who spent, you know, $150,000 or whatever on their, you know, game design degree in college. And guys like me can come along and within, you know, a few weeks or a few months learn how to do what they do. Um, in that sense, it can be frustrating for those guys. But in the same breath, um it, it really just comes down to passion and dedication. No matter who you are or what you want to do, if you're willing to dedicate to it, you can learn how to do
0: it. Yeah, and, and really nothing's stopping them from doing the same thing now that the Correct. technology's there. So to to you know, look down on someone because they're using tools that you haven't historically used doesn't make any sense. But yeah, I mean there are people out there making games in Unity that five years ago or two years ago or whatever. Wouldn't
2: have been possible.
0: Right, know? exactly. I mean I I look at um Kerbal Space Program. They built it on Unity 4. You guys are using Unity 5. Right. But they it was just a, a guy with an idea that just sort of set out on, you know, developing it and sort of same story with you guys. He he had an idea and he, you know, surrounded himself with a bunch of people that had the same ideas and they all sort of learned to use Unity and now it's, you know, a successful game.
2: I'd like to, to pick up on something to backtrack a second. Jeff, um, you had mentioned, you know, what, you know, where, where our team came from. And we have, we have faced some, some, and I think it's justified, um, some doubting Thomas's. And we actually, Giovanni and I recorded a session, it's been a few months ago now, on why we are kind of anti um, crowdfunding. The only reason we even have an Indiegogo right now is because our, our community Wanted a way to pitch in, and we said, Okay, you know, we can't take pre orders to the website yet, so this is what we can do. But you know, we looked at guys like, like, what is it, Peter Molyneux, I think is his name. Um, with the GOATIS yep. uh, issue. Um, here's a guy who took like $800,000 from people and said it was going to take him nine months. And then two years later, they still don't have anything deliverable. And his remarks on YouTube were, we just can't predict game development. And I'm like, I don't care who you are. Within five years of any industry, you should be able to know within a rough couple, three months of time frame how long something is going to take. Otherwise you just aren't good at your job. Yep. And if you've got... 15, 25, 35 years in an industry and you can't predict how long a project is going to take, you're a freaking hack. And, And we've looked at a lot of people out there and so I get it. When people look at us and say, how do you guys think that you're going to be able to realistically pull off an MMORPG when you've got these game developers who have got 25 years of of industry experience and they can't even do it. And I'd like to say that one of the reasons I think that we can do it is because we're not expecting $200,000 a year paychecks. We're doing this because of passion, not for a living. Now, obviously we'd love to make a living as game developers, when our game gets going. But we didn't start out doing this so that we could get a million dollar paycheck. We started out doing this because there was nothing else out there that we wanted to play and we wanted to make something that we wanted to play. And, you know, so I understand the doubting Thomases, but I'd like to think that, you know, if you look at our tracker track record for the last 14 months and see where we were and where we've, you know, how far we've come, I think that we've made very good progress. Obviously, we're not coming along as fast as those companies like Crowfall, who has, you know, 30 guys on their staff and a few million dollars behind them. But, you know, somebody in our team at one point when Crowfall was going through their their Kickstarter Somebody in our team had said, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had $800,000? And Giovanni and I kind of we were in team speak, and we just kind of laughed and said, it wouldn't change a thing of what we're doing. $800,000 would not change a thing of what we're doing. The only thing it would do was what it would allow some of us to go from part-time on the game to working full-time on the game. That's the only thing that we would change in terms of the development and the scope of the game was, it would allow us to go from part-time to full-time. That's the only thing, you know, a million dollars would do. But other than that, it wouldn't change anything um, because it's, this is just what we wanted to build since day
0: one. So, and I I think that's, that's really key is you guys are doing and making what you want to make because you want to make it it's not it's not that you know oh we need to ship this and you know so that everyone can right. can can and feed their families or whatever it's it's just because you want to do it you love you love this idea
2: and I think early on, um, Jeff, I think you had said something along the lines as well, or it might have been you, Eric, when you guys were talking about, you know, we're not expecting a 100,000 subscribers. Um, we've said since day one that we could be profitable with as few as like 2,000 players because none of us are expecting $200,000 a year paychecks. Uh, our target goal is – five thousand subscribers would be a great number that would be a comfortable number that would allow like 15 team members after taxes to make three or four thousand dollars a month for most of us that's a livable income um, not everybody on the team can can live on that money some of some of the team members are in places that cost a lot more to live but the bulk of the team three to four thousand dollars a month would provide a livable income and so five thousand subscribers a month which I think is a very realistic goal for a niche game you look at most of these EMU servers and they've got you know, 2,000, 3,000 players, maybe 1,500 on the lower end. And granted, those are free to play, but still, I mean, the audience is there. So, you know, we're shooting for a very small number, uh, 5,000 we'd be very comfortable with. If we hit – if we got 10,000 subscribers, we'd be able to expand to like 25 team members, uh, have an actual studio, and really kick things up a notch. Um, but again, we're, we're shooting for very small numbers because we know we're in a niche game. We're not expecting to have 100,000 subscribers. And again, we don't need to because we're not trying to push a product out just for you know profit.
1: Sure. So, just kind of thinking into current events and gaming and whatnot, and I just kind of wanted to make a nice little connection between your philosophy. For sorry, if I'm like jumping off topics, like don't worry about it. like man. I just I'm, saw a butterfly I'm, I'm flying whatever. by, and all of a sudden that's it's my like, focus of attention. <laughs> exactly, it's like oh, piece <laughs> of candy. Um, so it just kind of popped in my mind, but you know, I was thinking about. You know, you guys, this is a labor of love. And recently, as a lot of people know, there was a lot of uh, controversy with um, the experimental, I guess, release of modding in and, and Skyrim with uh, you know, Steam and Valve and whatnot. And one of the biggest concerns was that people see the modding community as kind of a, a place to really focus on the labor of love. People aren't in the modding community because they want to make a, a living out of it. They're in there because they're just really passionate about the game. Games. And that was something that a lot of really people stood by. And I think it's really interesting that that's your philosophy is that you guys aren't, uh, you know, you're not in it to make a buck because so many other companies have kind of seen the success of EverQuest and later, actually the big one, World of Warcraft. And, you know, they see it as their, their, their chance to make a quick buck here and there. And you guys are just really making a labor of love out of it. And I think that's really important for well, driving just- the success of your team. And you have right. 12 people on the team if i recall correctly right 12 team members and and then a contractor
3: and um regarding what you just said you've got to think about how we've watched every mmo around the building of wow turn and say they had such great success let's do exactly what they did (laughs) somehow there's now 50 games that are emulating wow and are trying to pull from that same pool of people who were brought into the mmo world from world of warcraft when every single game has changed to that pattern what's left for the rest of us who actually played mmos back in the late 90s or early 2000s and and You know, we found out through the development of this game that there's people out there who are saying, thank God somebody is doing something like this because I can't (laughs) take another WoW clone. And I mean, that's really, we're building it because we want to play it. And we were hoping that there was a substantial amount of people out there who felt the same way. Why did we get left behind? We were... We were the ones who wanted to play those games and get involved with the community. We didn't make fun of role players. It was just part of the immersion of the world. Let's let's spend those times in those grinding groups together sitting. There's downtime that's purposeful. What else is there to do but sit there and, and talk to each other while you're while you're eating, while you're regening mana, things like that in the original EverQuest. We we want to bring that back. I mean, even like Final Fantasy Eleven was very group-oriented for years and years while everybody changed. Well, now they've even changed. They're they're not even left. You know, EverQuest, you you can't play that now. They have this new progression server coming out. Let's go back to classic EverQuest, and you can see all that content. Well, what they don't tell you is that the monk DPS for bare hands has been changed so greatly, they can't revert that code. Now the monk starts out with, like, level 30 gear equivalent hands, and you can't take that away. There's a lot. Things like that, you know, EverQuest changed to to keep their people playing, to keep people interested, to adapt to the MMO genre norm. We just don't want to do that. And and it really is a labor of love. Of course, we want to be able to support the game. In order to do that, we need to make money. Uh, We are not in it to try and make a million dollars or a billion dollars, which, you know, it's just not going to happen. We're making a niche game for a group of
2: people who have been left behind and forgotten in the MMO world. Um, And and I kind of want to jump in on what Gio's talking about here. You know, we had a person, we've had more than one person, five or six, who have commented on it. You know, I think your Indiegogo is a scam because you're only asking for $5,000. And it's like, well, technically, we only put it up there for our fans. Um, To date, and I would have to look at the accounting, we've been 14 months in game development so far. And I think we have spent less than $1,200 it might be less than fifteen hundred. It's between twelve hundred and fifteen hundred dollars that we have spent out of pocket for everything, and that's including the website, the website hosting, the theme for the website, the Unity assets, um, the server costs, T-shirts that we're printing up. I mean, all the things that we've done for out of pocket expenses have been—it's it's absolutely less than fifteen. It might be less than twelve hundred. I don't have the sheets in front of me right now, but it's less than fifteen hundred dollars. And the reason for that is because all of us are putting sweat equity into the game. If you took our salaries and looked at it that way, we'd be looking at you know several hundred thousand dollars worth of, of salaries at this point. But because we're not doing that, um, that's just one of the ways we hope that we can show the people that we are doing this for passion because it's just – we're not asking you for $3 million. It's like we're just doing it. If you want to give us money, cool, pre-order the game. That'll help us pay for attendance to PAX next year. It'll help us buy Unity assets. It'll help us go to the Game Developers Conference in March of 2016. It'll help us pay for server costs to run the alpha. It'll help us pay for all this stuff. But otherwise, we're doing it all in our own pockets anyway. We just split all the costs evenly between the team members. Um, but I think so many people think that it costs – like five million or two million or some ridiculous amount of money, you know, to to build an MRM preachy. And that if you look at every Kickstarter out there, every Indiegogo campaign and every single one you look at, look at the pie charts for their for their development costs. And it's like 85% is salary based. Every single time it's always based around salaries. If you strip the salary costs away, it really doesn't cost anything to build a game Um, because, you know, server costs are minimal uh, website costs are minimal. Um, You know, so once you get rid of egos and people requiring massive paychecks, because, well, I've been a game developer for 15 years. um, Once you get that out of the way, it really doesn't cost anything to build a game. Um, of course, you have to find team members who are willing to put in the sweat equity like we are. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people get surprised that uh, we can do it for as little as we are.
3: Well, we had our community practically beg us to set up some sort of crowdfunding. Literally. They they, uh, saw what we were doing and they're like, "I, I really want to get involved in this. And then I've actually turned people away. Because they say, oh, you know, I'm going to I'm going to support you guys. And I'm, I'm like, listen, I want to make sure that everybody who gives us money has read our FAQ and knows what we're doing. This is not just another pretty game because the Unity engine is awesome. Please read about our mechanics. I, I don't want people buying into this, giving us money. And having their expectations be out of order. Um, I'm, I'm a project manager by trade, and, and managing expectations is one of the biggest things that you need to do. Um, you can't, you know, overpromise and under-deliver. You want to do it the other way around. So I want our anybody who, who thinks they're interested in this, please look around our website. Um, you know our our email addresses our forums you can ask us questions we're we're everyday people uh, we are not sitting in some ivory tower somewhere what um, we, I'm, what are you, you I mean, what actually are, you are you <laughs> this this awesome traveling nomad life and live in awesome locations <laughs> but for me i'm i'm sitting in an in a in an office in my house right now
1: um, Well. You know, it's kind of cool because what you guys are talking about right now is another thing. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about is really well explained on your website. Um, and we're just kind of going into the details. And, you know, I was reading, um, I think it was a blog post about transparency that yeah, you guys that posted. And I think one, yeah. that's um, I think that's actually a really great conversation to have both here and, you know, on your website continuously with your fans. What's like is I, maintaining I that transparency so that there's no surprises no secrets you guys are telling it like it is you know we are not we're not we're not using our big head uh, to uh pay our paychecks with this
2: this is one of the reasons we've done this there's been multiple fiascos in the crowdfunding universe i'm not going to name any names but there was a, a fiasco earlier last year where a, a certain game was being crowdfunded and, and the lead developer on the project took a you know close to fifty thousand dollar paycheck and really kind of You know, all the team members that were there at the time left because they were so upset over that. And it just really kind of shocked the community that that would happen. And then when people started questioning, well, why did you need the money? Why did you take it? The answer was that, well, it's, you know, privileged information. You don't need to know. And um, we've said since day one here's what we're spending. I update the newsletter, um, depending on my time, but, um, I, I write the newsletter three or four times a week. Sometimes if I have the time, sometimes it's once a week, just depends on my schedule. But every time I make a unity purchase, I go straight to the newsletter and I tell them what I spent the money on. I always, write As soon as I make a purchase, I tell people in the newsletter, here's what we spent the money on. Here's the, here's the link to the asset. Here's what we bought. Um, I always tell people that, and then we're actually eventually going to transition that over into an official spreadsheet for our high level backers uh, later on in the development process so that it's not going to be available to the everyday member but people who back us at like five hundred dollars or above on the website will get to see that but we are we're all about transparency and making sure that people can see every penny that comes in but like we just spent like uh 300 something like 300 uh in the last couple of days on more unity assets and i went straight to the to the newsletter and here's what we spent the money on guys. Thanks for your support. I mean, there is no, you know, need to know privileged information BS here.
0: It, it's, awesome. it's a, it's a different approach and that's, I mean,
2: you guys, well, are- we're just, we're just got, I mean, the thing is, is I think our selling point is, you know, we're just gamers like everybody else. And we, we've been burnt just as bad as everybody else. Um, in certain, I mean, some of us on the team have given several hundred dollars to projects that have, completely burned and failed. The developers have taken money and ran, ran away with it or just not completely not delivered on what they said they were going to deliver on. And we know how people feel because we ourselves feel that way. So it's like, you know, here's what we're spending the money on guys. You know?
0: Yeah, that's it's cool. All,
2: it's all right there. I was in the middle of getting involved in Spain when, when Geo sent me the, the article that you had written and, and it really meant a lot to us that, you know, you mentioned us being the spiritual successor to EverQuest because We, it's hard, like, we even have, like, my brother, uh, for example, um, has never played EverQuest 1. I got him into gaming. He's, I'm 35, and he's 20, I want to say 21 or 22, and his first MMORPG was Lord of the Rings Online, Mm -hmm. which back in the day was a group-based game. Yep. Um, if you wanted to go through the fellowship quests and follow the main storyline, you had to have a group to do it up through Moria. And then when they released, I think it was the the expansion after Moria was when they introduced this whole, now you can have this glowing rock that you can hold in your hand and it will give you 50,000 hit points and yep. you can run through the group quests on your own. And it completely, it just ruined Lord of the Rings Online. It's yep. like it went from being a group-based awesome game to being this hey single-player run through it free to play, you know, buy your way through. And my brother, unfortunately, came into the MMORPG environment um, in that. Uh, yeah, he started off with Lord of the Rings Online, and then he went to Star Wars: Elder Republic, and then he's played World of Warcraft. So he's the one building our zones, and he's doing an amazing job of creating zones. But even when when, G- when Giovanni and I looked at, and Giovanni more so than me, um, when he created that the the most recent dungeon. Um, which is his, I think, third or fourth that he's done. But he was doing the other ones with the free Unity assets, and now we've picked up these newer assets that we're using. Um, the most recent dungeon that we're doing for the pre-alpha, um, Giovanni looked went through it and said, you know, it looks amazing, but you know, there's no like areas. There's no really defined areas where you can set up a camp so to speak Um, because that's not
0: a thing in modern MMOs. exactly
2: it's not a thing in modern day mmos so one of the things he's doing he's going to go back into a polish pass um and he's going to put some of that stuff in there the concept of spending six months in a dungeon (laughs) is so foreign to someone from the modern generation of mmorpgs six months in howling stones or, or more importantly, like gearing your up, gearing, gearing your temple
0: of vision in in
2: kale. That's the next one I was going to was doing the kale run and then going to the T O V and spinning or, or keying up for straw in in the Lukeland expansion and spending like eight months getting keys for your guild. And then like going into the gray and everyone needs to have, you know, enduring breath items. And, you know, people can't, the modern day player cannot comprehend, they just can't compensate.
0: You need seventy-two people with Bane weapons. What?
2: Yeah, it's they it just can't. And we're that's one of the things we're actually still. We don't have a finite number that we're setting on raid groups yet. We've said that we're thinking like four groups, which is thirty-two players. That's It's a, a pretty good number. We're going to test that in alpha and beta, and if we feel that it can be lifted, we may make that number larger.
0: You guys post a lot of your pre-alpha screenshots, you know, sort of what's in development uh, to Google Plus is your primary platform that I've seen. And the responses are, are generally very positive. Um, we see some people you know, say that, oh, they don't look polished enough or something. But I think people miss out on the fact that this is pre-alpha.
2: We've had a lot of people who are on, on Google Plus. They like to criticize the the lighting or the shading. Yeah, yeah I've been colors. seeing that. And it's like it's like this is a first draft version. There has been zero art passes, zero shading. This zone will go through a you know anywhere from seventy five to one hundred and fifty passes before it ever gets launched to the live public. So to start judging it based on, it's ludicrous.
0: Well, and I think I think part of the the issue is that people are used to. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but back in the '90s, in in gaming magazines, there was a, uh, you know, people would take pre rendered CGI, or you know, even today they'll say this is all done in Engine and show a, a highlight reel. But yeah, in Engine does not mean in game, and one of the big things is. It, the big term was always bullshot, because, you know, they're expecting to see, you know, the final quality stuff or better than what they're actually going to see in, in promo shots. And it's just a load of bull. <laughs> and I think our
2: favorite has been, um, we get a lot of people saying, it looks just like Skyrim and they mean it as an insult, but my brother is like, hell yeah, <laughs> it looks as good as Skyrim looks. I'm taking, and it's my first pass. I'm taking that as a compliment.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, obviously. It, it,
2: you know, it's it's you know it's just kind of fun for us. So yeah, I, we have a lot of work to do in terms of managing expectations.
0: The thing about the demographic you guys are going after is everyone who's interested in this is passionate about this sort of thing. I,
2: like we were talking about earlier, the people who are going to play our game. Are the people who take gaming so seriously that, A, they're not afraid to pay a monthly subscription because, B, they're willing to invest 15 to 20 hours a week minimum to play the game because, C, they've been doing it for 15 to 20 years and they play with their friends and family. It's
0: It's what they do. It's what they do. Now, you said something about the team meeting largely in Project 1999, which is a popular EverQuest emulator, during early morning static groups. Can you dive into that a little bit?
2: We we're all self-employed. or working from home, and we were playing. We had a static group on P99, and every morning from about 6 in the morning till 10 o'clock in the morning, we would group up, and we would go out and do stuff with our static group. And that just kind of built from
0: there. One of the things I miss about the older MMORPGs is the fact that your reputation really mattered on the server that you played on.
2: We're we're looking to to have it have that be the case,
0: have it matter again. Yeah, if
2: it's, you're dick, b, you're, you're not going to get groups, basically.
0: Yeah, exactly, because it, it'll it'll be posted in the tavern or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But yeah, yeah. Je- Jeff and I met on Project Ninety Nine as well. That's uh, we we were both in Oasis. <laughs> killing specters at the, the specter tower. And, uh, he, uh, he came up and was going to KS me
1: him. decided against <laughs> it. <laughs> I actually did kill steal on, him um, a couple times. And before I noticed he was even there and then I kind of apologized and was about to get on my way. And I was like, well, let's just start grouping instead of, uh,
0: and again, know, yeah, it started with a social engagement where, you yeah. Know, and
2: that, like you guys were talking about earlier with world of Warcraft, that just doesn't happen. I mean, my brother, um, who's not here today, but he's actually, and and he doesn't know like we do what it used to be like, but even he has complained. Like he's complained about getting groups in world of Warcraft where within 10 minutes he's kicked from the group because he's not got the right build. Right. Or he's, he's not doing enough. You're a hundred points
0: of DPS too low or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, And
2: they're like, we, you know, and they want to bring somebody else in and it's like, he's like, he's like, I can't ever find groups because no one ever
0: wants me
1: to learn. And yeah, well maybe he should just start being good. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> no but you know it's funny because back in original wow you know people had their utility roles which was kind of cool you know rogues could pick locks hunters could set these like really elaborate traps if they were really talented enough and they, they actually they've kind of taken a lot of that utility out of yeah, the game actually it's just dps and, heals um, and yeah you know i'm thinking about it like i remember i played a hunter for a while in vanilla wow and um i just remember like i i I drop a freezing trap, wait 30 seconds, pull a mob, drop another freezing trap, feign death, drop another freezing trap because you couldn't drop traps in combat. And it was just really elaborate process, and it was all this utility. You can't really – you don't rely on that anymore.
2: So if you can imagine a scenario where here's a chest in front of you, and you're a mechanical thief. What do you do when you're – you know, when you come up against something of this nature, whether it's a door or a chest, whatever? You're going to look for traps – And if you detect a trap, you're going to disarm the trap and then you're going to look for a lock and then you're going to pick the lock and then open the chest. And assuming you make the checks along the way. You don't. Nothing happens. But if you trigger the trap, there will be consequences. And then if you, you know, maybe you break the lock and you now you can't get in the chest. You know, these are potential outcomes. We've, and we're, we're using a modified D100 system. So there will be critical failures and there will be critical successes and critical failures will mean that you just can't do that anymore um, or something drastic will happen. But now take that same chest. Let's take a scholar or a fighter or a monk. Um, The perfect example is the scholar, and he looks at that chest and says, hmm, I have rune-keeping skills. I have these – I can read runes, and I can find magical traps, and I'm looking at this chest, and I don't see any runes on the chest. must not be trapped. He touches the chest, boom, blows up in his face because he didn't detect the mechanical trap. Same thing if it has the mechanical lock. He can detect and open Magical traps and locks with his rune keeping abilities and his archaeological abilities and his ability to read hieroglyphs and runes and, and everything else, but he can't do mechanical. Now flip that around. Here's a rune trapped chest. The mechanical thief looks at it and just sees a a chest with some elaborate runes around the edges, but he can't detect that there's any traps. He can't determine whether or not it's trapped, whether it's locked or not. You need an actual scholar who has the proper rune-keeping abilities who can read the runes and determine that that's an actual trapped chest. So using that scenario, you can see how if you're in a dungeon and you've got Doors and panels and chests and sarcophagi and all these other things that could potentially be mechanical or could potentially be magic based. And you won't know unless you've got the people in your party who can determine that. Now, take that a step further. And here's a door that's rune locked, but it's in a language that no one in the party can understand. So even though the rune keeper or your scholar has enough you know runes to he's got enough skill mastery to read runes and normally open doors he can't read the language above the door mm. what's no what, what now you know he's either going to have to find a way to learn that language and maybe he can do so through studying because he's got enough skill points in that mastery that he can learn new languages as he reads them and studies them which is absolutely the case or maybe he goes and finds someone else who already speaks that language but you can't take anything for granted, and you're definitely going to have to have a well-balanced party. Giovanni goes off about this a lot, um, the, the, the importance of utility. And I know some people have been concerned that, well, we're not, you're not going to have clerics in the game. That's not right. I was like, well, sure we are. You can be a cleric if you want to be a cleric. But you're going to have to earn the relics that allow you to cast magic because that's just the lore of our world. And then later on when magic comes back, you'll be able to kind of transition into being a traditional cleric. But in the meantime, you're going to be relying on scrolls and eventually relics that allow you to cast spells. But before that happens, it's all about the utility and it's all about uh, mitigation and avoidance
0: and Survivability. Crowd
2: control okay. and survivability. I'm, I'm a cleric by
3: nature. So if you think like I'm, I'm making this game without clerics in mind, <laughs> you have another thing coming. But uh, just at, at the first stage of the game, you're not going to be able to just roll a cleric and sit around heal botting people. No. And you know what? That Although makes that's
0: my, perfect that's my sense. Goal. That's
2: my preferred role. I, I'm a healer by nature. We want to start doing like a weekly stream where it shows a static group of our developers going through and doing dungeons like once a week. When Alex brought that idea to me, night, I, I kind of went, you know what, show people what it's like to go to static groups, to be a part of a good guild, to get to know people, to more and more importantly, you know, like I think nobody really understands these days and nobody can really, no one understands. And f- very few people remember, you know, like just standing around and buffing people for three hours. <laughs> Like people, modern day gamers, are like what are you talking about? <laughs> Standing around and not making XP?
1: Oh well, yeah, that's going just insane. Mass group buffs and a uh, plate of knowledge over and over and over and over again. It was just yeah. a community-driven or thing. Just
2: hanging out in Orc Hill as yep. like a thirtieth level guy and yep. like rezzing people or dropping buffs on him and or, or you know damage shields and just
0: helping out. You know, people don't remember that kind of stuff. And so that was one of the other big things was like player-driven quests.
2: I got my first job as a writer because I on I was on the Antonia Bale server of EverQuest II, the roleplay server, and I we were a raid guild, but we were also a roleplay guild and I created a series of live events um called the Rod of Power and it was myself and another guild leader we created this storyline that we wrote between ourselves and then our guild members would participate as NPCs and then the server would participate as players and we would create these huge events and we did 6 or 8 of them um that actually got me my first job writing for Gamer God um doing EverQuest 2 stuff and then when we did it we did the same thing when we were running our guild in Vanguard and we had over 200 players show up to the um To the city, crashed the zone half a dozen times. I think it's still on the Silky Venom forums if Silky Venom is still around. That was called the Unseen Eye event, and it was this huge role play event. But our guild showed up in force, and we were the number two guild the number three guild, depending on who you talked to on the server. And it was unheard of for a raid guild or an end game guild to be role players at the same time. So Mm. we showed up in force with like 40 players who are all decked out in high end gear. We've all got mounts and everything else. And we're just, we had this huge like carnival thing. We had this one contest was create the ugliest character (laughs) and we gave out like um, awards. And then we had another one that we had a quest line and the first people to complete the quest line, we gave everyone full barding for their horses Um, and then we were just giving away like level 45 swords and, and stuff for these silly competitions, but it went on for like six hours. And then we did a few follow-up events and, yeah, I mean, that was a big thing. I mean, I've always been a writer and a D&D campaign guy. So, yeah, I mean, nobody does that kind of stuff anymore. So somebody asked us the other day if we're going to be doing live events, and we went, hell yeah, we're doing live events in our game. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's kind of the cool basis of you know good storyline is doing you know live events every few months where the world changes a little bit. And, and adds a little bit of spontaneity.
1: Honestly, I didn't really know about you guys until pretty recently. Eric started talking about you guys and he invited me to join this uh, conversation today. I was really excited about it and the more i researched you guys and the more this conversation has gone on i've been just really excited about getting back to what the core of social online gaming should be rather than what it has become and i think that you guys have a really excellent opportunity to attain that I really wanted sure. to elaborate on uh, archetypes because that's sure, a huge part of the game and we really didn't to touch tell. on it at all.
3: I, I got talk For now, we're just on that because like, I've I built oh, yeah. most of that system.
1: So I was looking at the archetypes and I thought it was pretty interesting how you broke them up. You have the adventurer and the scholar and they have what appears to be very, very different roles in what they're going to be functioning in the game, especially considering... That when the game initially releases for Volume 1, magic isn't exactly going to be a thing. It's a
2: limited resource. Basically, archetypes are, as you said, there's adventurers and scholars. And adventurers, in the purest sense, the adventurers are the forefront of any campaign into the wilds. Um, they're the ones who take the brunt of the damage. They're the ones who have the primary skills for combat, um, and and that's the traditional adventure, melee, mechanical type class. Then you have the scholar who is the more studious type, and these are the more utility-based classes and characters who are still every bit as vital to an adventuring session because adventurers can't exist. You can't have like six tanks – And expect to survive in the wild. That's not going to happen. You're going to have to have some utility to throw in there for the mix. So between those two – and this is where Giovanni can explain a little bit more about how that's going to happen – in character creation and what are some of the differences that you're going to see between those two?
3: Okay. The mastery system is a grouping of skills. Think uh, like thieving mastery has pickpocketing, um, some limited stealth, uh, things, you know, that you can do that way. You know, So to
1: compare it to something some modern gamers might be able to recognize as maybe like a perk tree from Skyrim?
3: Something along those lines. But uh, So it'll have a mix of active and passive abilities that you get. Pretty much every five skill levels, there's something somewhere that somebody can teach you. When you pick that mastery, you're going to start with one or two skills that you're able to use at skill level one. So you'll use those skills. And as you use them, we have algorithms that we're we're setting up that the number of successful skill uses, it'll give you kind of like a hidden experience that you you move towards the next skill level like you use this ability a certain amount of times and succeed you'll move to skill level two once you get up to like skill level 10 you're going to be able to say okay well now i need to maybe go back to town see if there's a trainer that can teach me uh, you know another tier ability for the skill level 10 because you've met that rank so you know like there's shield mastery has all um you know, related to, to shields, sword mastery. Mm-hmm. Now, an adventurer and a scholar are different because an adventurer gets to choose two weapons. If you want to be a ranger, like I said earlier, who dual wields one-handed swords and also uses a bow, you're going to have to pick an adventurer because they get two weapon skills. And this is all subject just subject to change, but, um, you know, this is really how we're planning on doing it. The adventurer gets two weapon skills and choice of three masteries. There's also going to be about, you know, five, I think we've, we've limited it to five choices of supplemental skills that you'll pick based on your stats, but are not linked to a mastery, just little things that you can pick up outside that are standalone that you can use.
2: Now, a scholar swimming, swimming would be an example of a standalone supplementary skill
3: right we have like a whole list of them um actually like if you want to wear plate mail you're going to have to pick a supplemental skill and have the required strength to actually pick that supplemental skill to wear plate mail otherwise you would be limited to another you know a lesser version of heavy armor which i believe is chain right now now the scholar he only gets one weapon but gets to pick four masteries so you might say okay well that's you know a little overpowered you can have an adventurer who chooses scholarly abilities because of the mastery system you're not limited in the masteries that you select you can make your stats anything you want you can be an adventurer who focuses on charisma and intelligence to get the masteries that you want that's something you can do but know that the adventurer gets two weapons if you want to be able to switch between two different types of weapons or have a sword and shield, things like that. You're gonna to want to be an adventurer. This prevents people from being a scholar and trying to tank. We do have different versions, like a scholar monk and a an adventurer monk. We have mm-hmm. some pre-built archetypes with groupings of skills that we've tried to make, and we will we will be putting them into the game as soon as we can. For the people who don't want to start with a custom build, they just kind of want to be, be nudged in a certain direction. So A scholar won't be able to wear plate armor. You're not going to want to try and build a scholar as the main tank of your group. But, you know, that scholar could be a monk, could be a thief. An adventurer could be a monk, could be a thief. It's really just, what do I want to do and how do I get there? And Mm -hmm. um, you can have a a melee-based scholar. You can do that if you want. It's really how many masteries do I need? What, what kind of stats do I want? Um, you know, the scholar is going to have an extra mastery that they get to choose from just to round them out and make them easier to pick up those utility masteries that I talked about before. They can pick the same three, uh, masteries that an adventurer would pick. Maybe they're combat oriented, but the scholar gets that extra choice to maybe, let's say, I want to pick up rune mastery. Because I want to be able to use runes, read runes, um, open up uh, magically trapped chests, and things like that. An adventurer would have to focus a little bit more specialized on what their role would be. So, you know, we wanted there to be a, a differentiation, but really our, our mastery system allows you to build whatever character you want with those few limitations.
2: And the important thing is that what we don't want is the plate mail wearing fireball throwing two-handed sword wielding master pickpocketer master of stealth type character Um, we do want players to have the flexibility to create kind of whatever build they want but obviously within within reason and we are doing some other things in the mechanical sense that um, certain masteries and abilities will, will have limitations placed on them for example if you were a thief and you have chosen uh, the acrobatics mastery line, there are certain abilities within the mastery line of acrobatics that will be canceled out if you try to wear plate mail. So if you choose plate mail as a supplemental perk when you have an acrobatics mastery line, it's kind of stupid to do that because you can't can't duck and tumble while wearing plate mail. You're not going to be able to – Walk a tightrope while wearing plate mail. Similarly, we've said, you know, if you try to swim in plate mail, you're going to sink like a rock. Yeah. There are some things that are going to be governed by a more realistic uh, set of rules.
1: I see. So now if a player makes a decision, like a stupid decision, how is that going to affect them as well? Well, we are going to like a dexterity plate wielding character. Uh, Excuse me, a tightrope walking plate wearing character. For you, could still,
2: you could still be that, and it would still yep. be beneficial in many cases, but there would be some abilities that while you're using plate mail – it's kind of like in classic D&D mages. If Armor you put class on plate penalty mail, or,
1: uh, or Eldritch yeah. spell failure exactly uh, arcane spell flayer excuse me
2: exactly that kind of a thing so you can choose to do it and it has its purposes and benefits and and you can use it in specific scenarios it would allow you to be a very unique style but it will have its downsides and so it comes yep. with a penalty
1: um, i believe in oblivion are... they did it where uh, arcane spells cost more magica.
2: yeah when you wear if... a plate. yeah yep. and what we're also doing is we're also working on skill degradation use it or lose it okay um, And it's just like, if you go to the gym every single day, you're nice and strong. If you don't go to the gym for six months, you turn into, I mean, it's just, it's the way we're working on it. We don't know the exact progression yet, but with that comes the caveat that let's say you spend a year playing a character and you realize that you're not really using a couple of these abilities, but you have points in there and you've kind of skilled it up. You, we will have a skill cap on how many skill points that you're allowed to spend long-term. And if you've decided that somewhere along the lines that you don't really like one of these abilities. Um, you'll be able to take those points away over time and put those somewhere else. Now, when you start the game, as Giovanni has said, you'll pick your masteries and supplemental skills. Mm-hmm. Now, throughout the, throughout the course of the game, you'll be able to learn lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other supplemental skills. You'll find them in the world as you run around, and you'll be able to put points into those supplemental skills. Um, but again, there is a skill cap, so at some point you're going to find yourself, you know, wanting to take points away and put points somewhere else. So you will be allowed to do that, but there will be the limitation that it's not going to be instantaneous. Um, Got it. If it took you six months to earn 15 points, it's going to take probably not the same amount of time, but it would take you a, a, a length of time to get rid of those points and put them somewhere else.
1: That makes and sense. And then this,
2: the this, this skill degradation is something where. That's done more to it's another it's another carrot on the stick to keep players moving forward and grouping with others and going out and doing things because if they just sit around and, you know, it's kind of like in what is the character's name? Caramon, the Dragonland series. I and mean, eventually he gets fat and old because he sits around in the tavern and drinks ale all day. And all he does is talk about the adventures that he used to go on. And if, if that's who you want to be, that's what you'll become. Um so in order to stay trim and fit, you need to stay out in the field and keep moving forward. And therefore, your mm-hmm. abilities will keep moving forward with you. But if you stop, um, you run the risk of, of losing points. And some people have said and said concern about well, what happens if I can't log in for three or six months? Am I going to log into a character that's, you know, skillless? And it's like, no, it's kind of like riding a bike. You never forget how to ride a bike. Um, and it's that, you know, in, in gym terms you have muscle memory you know once you learn how to do something the next time you do it 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 comes back quicker the second time so you might lose points by being at a game for six months but when you come back and you have to re-earn those points you will earn them much quicker than you than you did the first time yeah because it's the muscle memory thing and again these are you know algorithms that we don't have figured out yet but they are mechanics that are on paper that we're working on
1: Mm -hmm. long term that sounds pretty cool I like that idea. I think my Uh, favorite
2: is going to be the one that says, um, if you're in the deep darks of a dungeon and you didn't bring along a torch or a lantern, you're not going to hit it with your swords. The character can't see.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, that's like back to classic EverQuest. If you played a human, good luck playing at night.
3: Yeah, we want to kind of do that same thing where you need a light source to move around at night. I think that was one of my favorite things about EverQuest Classic is that that horror of nighttime of huddling near a hut and trying to pull back to the light source to fight them.
1: Yep. <laughs> oh man. At release in volume one, people will still be able to play scholars, right? Yes. It's just, they're going to be reliant on the relics Correct. until magic Correct. comes back in the later volume. Correct. Correct. Got it.
2: And the way the way the relics work, I mean basically um, if you have a relic and it's a in-game relic in the hands of a, of a person with 50 skill points, it's gonna do X abilities. In the hands of somebody with 75 skill points, it's gonna do Y abilities. The more skill points you have, the more abilities, That item will do because you understand it more. You know how to utilize it better, and your abilities will be more powerful. Now, if you take that ability, because we do plan on nothing in our game is bind on equip or bind on acquire. That's actually
1: another question I had for you guys, but we kind of got off topic, so I'm glad you mentioned it.
2: the only items that will be so are quest items, especially related to raid quests. Those items you can't trade; those are for you buy and acquire. But everything else, for the most part, is going to be you know freely tradable. Now, the caveat is that an epic weapon in the hands of a end game scholar can do lots of cool. Shit. In the hands of a normal player who's just starting out, just you know, like an alt or a first play, first level character or something, you know what I mean, who has no skill points and runes or anything else. It's just a staff that yep. maybe it does plus one damage. Now, as he levels up his skill in rune keeping and rune reading and reading runes and all these other lore-based abilities, he will start to unlock those abilities. And, and, and you know, it, it could be a scenario where you give a epic-level weapon to a first-level character, and that's the weapon they use for the next two years because it is so cool that they don't ever need to replace it. Mm-hmm. Um, gear is very very important in our game relics for the most part have limited charges now when magic comes back to the realm some of these items will transform and some of these items will be able to be recharged but for the most part players need to understand that relics are fleeting you know resources especially the ones the more powerful ones like for example if somebody gets their hands on a, on a rod of teleportation you know there's probably only going to be a handful of players on the server who might have that, and it would be very rare and have some serious, you know, downtimes or whatever the case may be related to it. But uh, gear and relics play a very important role. We're not doing stat bloat. We're not doing hit point bloat. So we're we're sticking to like the classic D and D style of hit points. So beginning, you know, you'll have you know from twenty to forty hit points, and by the time you get to end game, you might have two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty depending on your armor. Um, so mages and thieves, yeah, you can get one at if you're not paying attention and you're not you know don't have your abilities or you're not in the you know in the wrong place wrong time or you try to do too much dps too quickly um you don't play your class the way it's meant to be played you know kind of yep. situation um you'll die and we've made it so that you know a, an in-game character if you strip away all his gear sure he's still got you know max level skills um but it's the gear that adds the hit points, it's not the stats, Mm -hmm. it's the gear. And it's the magic imbued in that gear that modifies the abilities of the player. So it's kind of like the Iron Man suit, you know, it's it's, strip away the Iron Man suit, he's just a guy. And that's one of the other things that we're doing to get around the limitation on intelligence. For example, if you have a high level tank, um, he finds a really cool sword that's part of a set at the end game. When he's just trying to use the sword, it's just a sword. It maybe has a couple of things that he could do because he has such a limited intelligence, but when it's combined with the full armor set that it's meant to go with, it will have abilities that that work independent of his intelligence stat. I got it. So it will, you know, that's going to be one of the caveats of of following the storyline is that you're going to find these armor sets along the way um, that are part of the overall overarching storyline. And also, certain dungeons will have. Uh, I know one of the dungeons being designed is based completely around relics, and um, that will be something similar that will come out of that dungeon for end game players. Um, but yeah, gear is important and uh, finding these relics is going to be very important. But relic mastery is tied to the skill of the player and how much they understand how to use that relic.
3: We just wanted to make sure that like the fighters out there didn't get to not use cool magical weapons because they didn't take any intelligence to start with. So we will have, like Tim said, some item sets Um, when you when you complete, you know, maybe a three to five piece set. It'll come with inherent abilities that get opened up to you. Uh, as if you were uh, a relic master um but you know if if it's something you want to do from early on you're going to want to pick the relic mastery so that you can manipulate those items and identify those items for others early on
1: when you create a character you pick an archetype or do you create a character and you become an, an uh like something and then as you level up you pick an archetype no you'll, and then you'll you you specialize it a into a class At character
2: creation, you pick an archetype. Once you've picked an archetype, you pick a primary, secondary, and tertiary stat. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Once you've picked your stats, you then pick your masteries associated with those stats. And then you pick your supplemental skills and weapons, and then you log log into the game. And from there, um, you start working your way up. And the most important thing to remember is that the vast majority of advanced training abilities and advanced trainers are not going to be found in the cities. Players yep. are going to have to go out in the world and explore and find them. You know, the hermit living off in a cave in the middle of some dungeon corner, you know, um, that, you know, it takes you a few weeks to find possibly. Um, so, and, and the caveat we've talked about, something you should know about masters. If you haven't read this is that, um, the pre builds that Giovanni has, and Nick have designed, um, the, the pro and con of, of choosing to create a custom class versus choosing a pre-built archetype is that the pre-designed ones each will have one or two, maybe three advanced abilities already assigned to them so like the ranger will have advanced tracking if you choose the ranger build if you choose a normal character creation from scratch and you go to look for tracking you're only going to find the normal tracking available you will not find the advanced tracking available instead you'll have to find that in the real world hope you have the faction and everything else to earn it from the master when you find him Mm -hmm. Um, the, the difference is that even though you don't get the custom you don't get the advanced. Build ability or two when you're building a custom build you have far more flexibility in what you can create and you're not limited to a predefined set of skills so. and this is to encourage players to pick a build we know will
3: not suck <laughs> so <laughs> they don't ruin their experience if if they really want to make a custom character we'd like them to do so and and to be able to live with those choices. But uh, for those who are maybe a little wary, uh, their first character, they don't want to do a custom. We wanted there to be an option and a kind of an incentive for them to get started and to just be a little bit ahead of the curve just for the new player experience. Although I know um, there are some of us out there who will want complete control over the character. We wanted that to be available as well.
0: Well, guys, we're at about an hour, so we should wrap it up here. But if people want more information, they can obviously go to sagaofleucemia.com to find out more, as well as follow you guys on Twitter, at Saga of Leucemia, and we'll put that info into the show notes as well. Thank you so much to Tim and Giovanni again from Saga of Leucemia for spending considerable chunk of time with us to dive into the details of their upcoming game. We hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the waters of nerdy D&D-style MMORPGs. As always, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at citizens of tech. My name is Eric Sutphin. You can follow me on Twitter at zutphen, and you can read my blog at zutphen.com. Thanks again to Jeff Pugilis for helping with the show today and citizens of tech will resume its normal format in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you soon.